Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Father Holmes is here with us, who is the parochial vicar here at St. Ambrose, who will be leading us in prayer. If you could please stand. Thank you, and certainly all of you welcome. We pray that uh, as we enjoy the lecture that we will be enlightened by this great doctor of the church, St. Augustine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious God and eternal Father, we thank you for all the blessings, joys, and gifts of this day. We thank you for the gift of the church, for the power of the Spirit, for the power of the cross in your Son who sheds his blood to redeem us. We thank you, Lord, for all the great teachers and those who have gone before us marked with the sign of faith. We pray that through the words of Augustine that our minds would be opened, that our hearts would be set on fire, and that we'd be filled with grace and joy this evening as we see this man who, struggling in his own humanity, coming to know the light of Christ, said that our hearts will never rest until they rest in thee. Formed by the word of God and taught by our Savior, we dare to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father. I see you all came out to hear a talk on sin. I wonder how many will be here for the talks on virtue. <laughs> Our speaker tonight received his Bachelor of Arts degree in philosophy from Regis University in Denver, Colorado, after which he pursued his graduate studies in Rome at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas the Angelicum, where he obtained his licentiate in philosophy and where he is now completing his Ph.D. in philosophy. In addition to serving Christendom College as a professor of philosophy, Professor Wunsch has traveled widely lecturing on a variety of topics, including the relationship between faith and reason, the connection between philosophy and history, and the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Please welcome back Professor Mark Wunsch. Hey, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Sabatina. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Sabatino. It's good to see so many friendly faces and some new faces. I'm kind of out of jokes. Usually I begin with a joke. Uh, but I thought Sabatino would only invite me once or twice, and so I've gone through my repertoire of jokes already. <laughs> and so I'll have to work some into the lecture, uh, but none to really uh, get started. And also Sabatino seems to have introduced me rather well, so I'm not going to bore you with some of the detail, other details of my background. As much as I like to talk about myself, uh, I think I will save that for another occasion. And, and, and right now, dive into the content of this evening's lecture. Now, I want to make sure that everyone has the packet of text here that I'm going to be making reference to this evening. Uh, so it, it looks something like this. Okay? Uh, it looks something like this. Now, what I have here, uh, uh, we have already said our prayer for the evening, uh, but there, there's a nice prayer before study of St. Thomas Aquinas uh, that I put here, that I attached. 
uh, it's not Augustinian, but, but St. Thomas, after all, did quote St. Augustine more than any other thinker in the totality of his works, so uh, he's always, to some extent, an Augustinian. And there's a very nice prayer that I think you might enjoy. Uh, and then the rest of the text that we might, we'll make reference to later. Sabatino referred to the conversion of St. Augustine. Now, before we go through our agenda for the evening and begin with, with the lecture proper, I, I would like to ask you a few questions. Okay? And I'm not going to continue uh, in this, this style for the whole time. It's a big group. Uh, but I might begin by kind of dialectically engaging you and asking you a few questions. Uh, obviously, conversion is central to the confessions of St. Augustine. And so I'd like us to think a, maybe a little bit more deeply about the nature of conversion. Now, what is conversion? What is conversion? What's this? Change. change? Okay. Any change whatsoever? Uh, change for the better? Change for the worse? Hopefully for the better. Yeah, hopefully for the better. Uh, okay, so change. It involves a, a change of some kind. Would anyone like to elaborate? A turning around. Okay, okay, good, good, good. A turning around... Towards something, or just kind of around, and, you know, kind of like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, away, but toward. Okay. okay, 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 okay. Turning. Toward. Okay, okay. And toward maybe a particular end? It's God. To God. Okay, okay, okay. So turning toward God. Now, we would turn toward God uh, with our full person, right? Uh, it's not a partial turning toward. It's not even a directional turning toward but a turning toward him with our whole person. Now, what does that imply? What is imp implied in a complete turning toward God? It implies that we were not turned that way. Oh, that's good. Okay, so there, there's something we are turning away from, uh, and, and we're turning instead towards something else. Now, that's good. Now, now I'm wondering, though, uh, in, in, in what, is it, what is it entailed in my full person turning towards God? Surrender. Okay. What kind of surrender? That's good. That's good. Okay, know yourself. And and let's know ourselves for a moment. Okay. What is it what what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to fully be a man? Because obviously or a woman in this you know and, and to turn toward God. Uh, what what is entailed in being a man? What makes you know, uh, humans, if you will, distinct from maybe lower life forms or what have you? Okay, heart, mind, body, and soul, good. So, I'm, so I, I think we're getting at this. Now, one way to understand man is to understand him by way of his functional parts. And, and, uh, there's, there's ways, different ways, in order to know reality and to know different things. But one of the best ways to know what something is, to see how it behaves. And as we observe man and the way he behaves, uh, we discover that man has different functional parts. Uh, he behaves like a lot of other material things. Uh, he grows like a plant even. Uh, he's able to be nourished like a plant. Uh, he's even able to have kind of knowledge of things outside of himself by way of different powers, by way of, of his exter exterior sense powers, for instance. It puts him in contact with the world. And then there's another kind of side of man okay, that, he, that he shares in common also with animals. Uh, and, and we might call this his appetitive side, or his appetites. Uh, there's a part of man that knows reality, 
And then there's a part of man that is moved toward reality. And yet the way man knows reality and the way he's moved towards reality is different than an animal. Okay? Uh, we, we say, and without getting into all the, the philosophical anthropology here, that man has an intellect right, that is ordered to truth. And he has a will that is ordered toward goodness okay, or toward the good. And so we see in man these high powers. And without getting into further discussion of that for now, you can just you know, take me at my word. Uh, uh, we ought to then, if we are going to be converted, to turn toward God both with our intellect and with our will. And that certainly involves knowing God rightly. And then with our, if you will, desiring part of ourselves which is involved in love, which is involved in uh, kind of our exterior moral uh, and interior moral decisions, okay, we ought to turn towards God as well. Conversion is in some sense complex, and we discover that in a peculiar way through the life of St. Augustine. Okay? St. Augustine was able okay, to turn toward God, uh, but it took, as you've read, uh, how many of you have read the Confessions of St. Augustine? Okay, uh, most, a lot of you, almost half of you, uh, have read the text. And you see in the text that Augustine uh, very arduously and laboriously and even slowly, incrementally, turns towards God. Now, at first, there is something of an intellectual conversion, okay? He comes to know God rightly. But even though he knows God rightly, his appetites, if you will, his, his lower appetites, his passion and his will, his, his higher appetite, his rational appetite, have a hard time falling into line with what he knows to be true and the God he has come to know. And so what I'd like to do over the course of these few lectures okay, is to focus on St. Augustine's conversion by way of analyzing, first of all, his intellectual conversion, the way he came to know God rightly. And then secondarily, okay, and we'll focus on the next time we meet, how he came to love God rightly. Okay? Now, just to see, hopefully so you can see you know, kind of what's at stake here, and what's going on even with the nature of, of conversion, the relationship between the intellect and the will, between our intellectual life and our moral life. Uh, you know, if, if you consider this you know, for a minute, uh, you might see you know, what's at stake here. Uh, you can see that intellectual conversion does not automatically lead to moral conversion. Okay? You might say even that the devil knows God rightly. But the problem is he doesn't love rightly. Okay? And so there's a fascinating interplay between what we know and what we love. However, without knowledge, you can't love at all. And so thus we'll begin with an assessment of how he came to intellectually discover the God of Christianity. Now, Augustine came in a very circuitous way. Uh, to know God. And he came ab about uh, discovering God, and we'll, we'll discuss this in great detail in a moment, by way of different philosophical schools. In particular, he discovered 
uh, the philosophical school of Neoplatonism, okay, which is one of the only ones that's not up here, <laughs> and that I might write up here in, in a little while. Uh, it's, it's one of the good schools, if you will. Uh, it, it, was, it was most instrumental in his conversion. And myself, as a philosopher, uh, I just want to be clear about what I intend to do. Uh, I'm not a theologian, though I am a believer. I'm actually a convert as well uh, to Catholicism. I converted my freshman year of college. And so uh, I'm not going to focus on all the great theology per se, uh, although I have to because it's, it's fundamentally a work about theology to some extent. And yet my training is more in philosophy. And so I'm going to show you something very interesting. Because in the conversion of St. Augustine, okay, we, we'll see something very interesting that I think might be very useful to you, even as you begin to evangelize others. Now, one of the problems we find with Augustine is though okay, uh, uh, he grew up as a Christian, once he renounced the faith, he began to see Christianity as irrational. Okay? And so he needed, in the course of his pursuit of truth, okay, to find a sufficient philosophical system that would make Christianity intelligible. Okay? And this he found in Platonism, okay? uh, which, again, is, is a school of thought based ultimately on, on the ideas of Plato. And we're going to see something very interesting as we go through the course of his life. We'll see that his, his affirmation or his tendency to, well, his, his affirming the, the doctrines of a variety of alternative philosophies, philosophies you see up here, materialism, determinism, skepticism, a kind of dualism, prohibited him from seeing the intelligibility of the faith. Okay? We'll see that the doctrines of the materialists, which assert that all that is, is reducible to what is material, okay? having embraced that ideology, he was incapable of seeing how the gospel and the truth that God is an immaterial being and that there are immaterial beings uh, that exist in a higher way than things that are themselves material the whole doctrine, you know, even of the soul as an immaterial part of man that is capable of existing after, after death, all of these doctrines of our faith were going to be rejected by him as long as he clung to these various philosophical schools. And it was only when he found the correct philosophy, okay, which again is the pursuit of truth via reason, that he was able to see that the doctrines of Christianity were intelligible. And having stumbled finally upon Neoplatonism, he found a, a philosophical school that all of a sudden showed that the gospel is grounded in reason and yet is able then to, without contradicting reason, reveal even more, higher truths that even reason unassisted by faith could never show on, on, on the basis simply of reason itself. And so we find in Neoplatonism, finally, after this long, circuitous uh, search for truth, a way of thought that was able, and I've given kind of this uh, uh, reflection before, this analogy, to till the field upon which the seed of revelation could be sown. Uh, beforehand, the field of his mind 
uh, was impenetrable. It could not receive the truths of the faith. Okay? Until he found a sufficient philosophy that could undergird, if you will, uh, the theology that he would embrace by converting to Christianity in his 30, uh, third year of life. Okay? So we're going to trace that uh, intellectual conversion. Okay? And then we're going to see his advice to others. Okay? Now he's going to advise others to not pursue the path that he pursued, but to pursue the fullness of truth uh, in a different way. Uh, to ultimately first believe and then seek to understand. Uh, he saw the perils in his experience, and though he eventually, and also with God's help, was able to see the fullness of the truth, uh, he knew that reason by itself, without the assistance of faith, uh, only arrives at the truth in fits and starts, okay? and with an admixture of air. And it was only, again, by God's grace, uh, that he finally was able, uh, in a very, again, uh, laborious sort of way, uh, to, to see the intelligibility of the faith and be intellectually converted. Okay, so we're going to trace that whole intellectual conversion tonight. And so as we look at the text, we're going to be looking for how he uh, embraces these ideologies, maybe even a little bit of why, and then how he overcomes them. Okay, and finally, in the next, well, in the next lecture, we'll then talk about how his moral conversion uh, then progresses uh, and is able uh, to allow him to be fully converted okay, and able to embrace the faith. So that is what I intend to do over the course of these two nights. Now let's provide now some background on St. Augustine in general. And then what I'm going to do is go through some details about his life and about his ongoing and this conversion of him ultimately uh, intellectual conversion to, to know the fullness of truth in the Catholic Church. Okay, so a little background. Okay, just about Augustine before we go through some of the major highlights in his life. Okay, now in general, I think you've been exposed to by way of the, this Institute of Catholic Culture uh, the thought of a variety of different periods of time, uh, a variety of, of philosophical schools. Uh, and also a variety of theologies. But we've given, I think in general, and maybe in your experience, has been, you've seen uh, the pride of place of scholasticism or the thought of St. Thomas. Uh, but it's important to know kind of even uh, the great minds on whose back even St. Thomas stands. And so as far as the history goes of, of the philosophy of the Middle Ages, it all begins with Augustine. And like Boethius, another great Christian thinker that we studied, Augustine was a kind of bridge builder. He bridged the philosophy of late antiquity and the pagan world uh, to the philosophy and theology then of what would become the medieval world. Okay? And his thought would predominate all the way up until the 13th century, okay? when St. Thomas and, and his Aristotelian adversaries uh, who weren't, in, in many cases, in, many cases uh, in almost every case, uh, they, they were not hostile towards Augustinianism, uh, but they were, uh, by embracing Aristotle and not Plato, uh, in, in some ways cut from a slightly different cloth. Uh, and it was only at this time that all the major theologians in the church were not, if you will, 
on the, really the fundamental same page as Augustine, at least as far as the Western world goes. Okay. So we see in Augustine some things that are different from Thomas. And so since we've been exposed a little bit to Thomistic thought, I might just begin by pointing out a little bit of what's different about the way he does things. Okay. So first of all, he is not a scholastic. Okay. The scholastics uh, were a group of theologians. Uh, that existed uh, in, in the Middle Ages, it's kind of the high Middle Ages, uh, really beginning with, in some ways, the 10th into the 11th, uh, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, are kind of the hearts uh, of scholasticism. And what was, uh, what was indicative of their thought, well, there's a few distinct marks, is, as you can hear in the name, their thought was pursued in schools, scholasticism. Okay, so uh, intellectual life was done uh, really beginning uh, in the 12th century and into the 13th century, uh, finally done in schools. Okay, it came out of the monasteries uh, where uh, philosophy reigned uh, in, in the life of individuals like St. Anselm, uh, who, who lived between 1033 and 1109. And finally, in the 12th century, it came into the urban schools, uh, first of all, cathedral schools that were built next to the cathedral and later evolved in the, in the 13th century into the modern university. Now, what is characteristic of scholastic thought is that it's highly systematized. Everything is def- divided and defined. If you look at the Summa Theologiae, uh, everything is organically related. Okay? You have a very coherent structure. Uh, everything is related to everything else. And all the terms are sometimes difficult because it's technical. They're writing for a technical group of of individuals, these seminary students, who can presuppose the same kind of vocabulary. And thus, they're also very objective. In reading the Summa Theologiae of Thomas, you learn nothing about his personal life. Now, with Augustine, you see some very distinct differences. He is not writing for a bunch of seminarians. Uh, He's often writing more for a popular audience, and thus we find his work to be, in some cases, just imminently readable and even accessible. However, it's not always organized the way Thomas's thought is organized. Uh, he's writing to really convince people of the truths of the faith, and so he's writing in a way that is engaging. Uh, he's, he's, he's using uh, all the, uh, his training in rhetoric, his knowledge of, of, of the great classical writers, and using all of the devices in his power to convince people of the Christian faith, and then to begin and, and to their catechesis and their knowledge of, of, of the faith as it should be rightly understood. Whereas with Thomas, he's not as invin- interested in convincing people of the faith, but he's interested in systematizing uh, uh, the theology of, of his time period. Uh, Thomas, of course, uh, who lived between, between 1225 and 1274 in the 13th century. Now, we also see something very different here as far as his writing goes. He is very subjective, if you will, and instead of objective. Okay? He's going to pursue truth by way of his own experience in a way that, that is not true of St. Thomas. Now, when I speak of subject, there's a variety of ways to understand that. It doesn't mean relative, uh, or he's a kind of relativist or something, but he is basing his pursuit of truth on, to some extent, his, also his personal experience, and he makes reference to that throughout. Okay? 
Whereas Thomas, as we just discussed, does not show, uh, it does not reveal in the course of his reflections on theology, anything about himself and his own personal life. Uh, and so we see in the confessions, everything is highly personal. Okay? It is all about him and his pursuit of God. Now because he doesn't have this systematic approach to philosophy and theology, he also doesn't make some of the fine definitions and divisions that St. Thomas does. Thomas, based on Aristotelian thought, and Aristotle was a master in logic, always defined and distinguished everything perfectly. And thus, Thomas, and as we've discussed, will distinguish very carefully the science of theology and distinguish it from the science of philosophy. Now, with Augustine, you don't have the same kind of interest in systemization. And so he speaks of philosophy and theology in a way that's interchangeable. Okay? It's not that uh, he denies that man has a way of pursuing truth via reason, and he has a way of pursuing truth via revelation and what God has revealed, but he simply thinks that we use both of those in the pursuit of wisdom. And therefore, his understanding of philosophy is simply this, the pursuit of wisdom. And we pursue wisdom by a variety of means. And therefore, we use any, anything at our disposal, uh, rational arguments, logical syllogisms, uh, what God has revealed by way of sacred scripture, and we use all of this in pursuit of the truth. Now, because of this, he's always, if you will, a theologian. And he intermingles you know, with even some of the philosophy or the philosophical concepts that are present, his theology. In other words, it's inextricable, his philosophy is, from his theology. And yet, there is a lot of philosophical content. Uh, a lot of the famous Augustinian scholars will say that in Augustine, there's a lot of philosophical content, uh, but very little philosophical method. And what that means is there's a lot of instances where he pursues truth via reason, okay, and reason alone. Uh, but it's in places that are alongside other arguments he's making by way of, of the use of revelation. And so one, to know his philosophy, has to kind of extract from his works uh, those truths that are simply knowable by reason. And yet, philosophy is and, and was extremely instrumental in his conversion. And so now, as we begin kind of his, his story of his life, I'm going to try to pick out how philosophy, again, was, in, in a very precise way, instrumental in his coming uh, to the fullness of truth in the Catholic Church. Okay. So that's a, a little bit of a long introduction, but I just want you to uh, have a little bit of the lay of the land and, and understand a little bit about the way the man thinks and how it relates to even the way other individuals within our faith uh, uh, do theology and, and pursue truth. Okay. Now, St. Augustine, and a lot of you are familiar with this, so I'm not going to bore you with all the facts and details here, but I'll hit some of the highlights. Uh, he was born in Tagost, which is a, a, a city in North Africa, in three thir uh, 354. Okay? Uh, and he was born to Patricius and Monica. Okay? So Patricius was uh, his pagan father. Monica was his Christian mother. Okay? We know most of these details. Uh, uh, his mother obviously raised him as a Christian. Okay? 
uh, without too much resistance from his father. However, through a sad custom at the time, he was not baptized. There was this tradition of delaying baptism until someone was uh, near death so that their sins could be forgiven and that they would be able to go to heaven in in kind of an immediate sort of way. And and there was the fear that if someone was baptized that they would commit some mortal sin uh, and, and not be forgiven before they met their maker. Uh, Now, St. Augustine would later speak against this tradition of delaying baptism uh, when he was a bishop. Uh, He would say that if you have medicine, you give it to a sick person. And if someone is morally sick, you give them the medicine uh, of baptism and to free them from original sin, etc. It is obviously advisable that this be given to someone uh, even as an infant, and even preferably as an infant. Now, in his early education... Uh, He was schooled in the rudiments of the Latin language, uh, obviously arithmetic uh, and and some of the liberal arts, uh, uh, rhetoric, grammar, logic, and and these things. And finally, was sent off to a kind of formal education at the age of nine. Now, before he did, he also received a a little bit of training uh, also in Greek uh, and uh, uh, his Greek, his knowledge of Greek was not always exceptional. He liked some of the Homeric uh, poems as stories, but he never really became proficient. Uh, and now I'm, I'm taking a big risk here uh, by actually incorporating a joke uh, that, that might actually aim at about half of the people here. And, and given that there's no door behind me, oh, there it is, I guess, uh, uh, I might be setting myself up for a fall. Uh, however, I, I think I'm going to try to you know, actually take out the other half of you a little bit later and try to even it out. Uh, uh, but, but here it goes. Okay. Uh, now, I was trying to, when I was, uh, took a class in Rome, and, and they were trying to talk, uh, one of these Dominicans was trying to explain the level of, by which Thomas and Augustine had assimilated Greek, uh, and, and they're trying to explain this. <clears throat> and he said, well, okay, and this is this Italian uh, uh, priest, an older Italian priest, and, and some of the, the priests were highly engaging as far as their lectures go, but some of them just sat down and they just read to you, okay, and you just listened and you sat down and sometimes listened to what they'd given you and, and while they read to you. Uh, and, and there's something kind of demeaning in that. They, they, it's almost condescending for them even to be in the same room as you. At least a few of these older Italian priests had that mentality. Not all of them, but certainly this one. And so we're sitting there, and he finally you know, kind of uh, condescends to our level by looking up from, uh, looking up from his, his notes. And he says, eh, and this is all in Italian. He said, well, you know, St. Thomas, he knows, uh, he knew Greek yeah, kind of way, the way a woman knows how to drive a car, you know. Yeah, they, 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 they know something about how, how to get from here to there, but they never really learn how. You know, and I'm like, ooh. You know, and, I'm like, and these poor religious sisters are in the room, and I just saw them, like, with this van driving through the city, you know, and had to parallel park just to get, you know, up to the university. I'm like, yeah. And, of course, the sisters just, you know, they didn't, they didn't confront him. But, you know, uh, he would have been fired in America. You know, it would, that would have been it. You know, it would have been over. Anyway, but it's always a kind of a memorable kind of moment, you know, in terms of understanding his assimilation of Greek. Ah, so he knew something, but he, he wasn't radically proficient. In any case, in, in 365, he moved on to Medaura, this other city uh, in the ancient world, uh, that was pagan in character. Okay, and this begins the separation of Augustine. Uh, from the morality that was instilled in him by his mother. 
Uh, and you also see, and this cuts towards the gentleman in the room, uh, the, 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 and, and it is a call on uh, to, to higher things to, into myself as a father as well. Uh, but you see the lack of his father's uh, actually being a real leader as far as his religious upbringing uh, made uh, uh, obviously uh, an impression in a negative sense here uh, because his father was kind of absent there. Uh, he, he came to see the faith as something you know, for women and children. And as he grew up and as he grew into uh, you know, uh, uh, a young man, uh, he begins to become more and more distanced from the faith of his youth. Uh, he studies there at Medaura from 65 until 69, at which time he has a year of idleness. And, and here's to cut towards the guys. A year of idleness for a 16-year-old boy is utter disaster. Utter disaster. You know, even uh, you know, f- five minutes of idleness for my little boy uh, is utter disaster. Literally, things are destroyed in five minutes. You know, uh, you know, things, things, yeah, and, and this also, you know, uh, St. Augustine, uh, again, in a variety of ways, gets involved, and we'll talk about his moral conversion a little bit more in some of these details maybe next time. But he comes involved in petty thievery and just other rebellious acts. Uh, and he says he was so, a great sinner for so small a boy. Now finally, his father procured the funds to send him to Carthage, which is the largest city, was the largest city in North Africa. And this is where he begins, if you will, his university education. And it's also where he, he, he renounces his Christian upbringing, okay? And he separates himself in a definitive way uh, from the church and from that upbringing. Uh, it's also the year his father died, for what it's worth, after having become a Christian. Uh, he he, he um, takes a mistress in his, his one of his first years here. He fathers a child out of wedlock and, and really abandons himself, if you will, to a life of pleasure. However, something very good happens at this time as well. He reads a work of the Hortensius of Cicero, which is a now non-existent work, that inspired him to pursue truth via reason. Okay? Now this is the beginning of his intellectual conversion to the faith. Because again, if we seek truth, we will find it. And eventually, after many heirs, he will find the truth. And so this is a beautiful moment, uh, that he didn't despair of knowing the truth, and he tried to seek after it, uh, though at first he tried to find it in many of the wrong places. Uh, The first place he tries to find truth is with the Manichaean religion, in the the religion of Mani, or or the the Manichaeanism is is, uh, uh, the ideology that he embraces. Now, I'm going to say a little bit about this. I do want to get to the text, and I see how time uh, so quickly uh, is passing. And so I'll just give you a a brief, very brief here, assessment of this religion. Uh, It talks about it extensively in the Confessions. Uh, So he is, uh, he he, he, uh, ascribes to this religion, and let me give you just some of the details. Uh, The Manichaeans, he felt, offered him a rational explanation of reality, as opposed to a a kind of mythology or an irrational or even childish presentation of reality that was communicated by the illogical doctrines of Christianity. Uh, He especially rebelled from the idea of Christianity that a good God, okay, uh, who who creates the world out of his goodness, uh, uh, would somehow allow evil to exist. Uh, the whole idea that God made everything 
and yet there is evil in the world and, and thrives in, in a kind of abundant way was something that was just, just unable to be palated okay, by, the, by the young Augustine. And he favored instead the explanation of the Manichaeans, which is a kind of dualism. They would advocate uh, that, if you will, uh, at least looking at man, that the part of man we call the soul, which is identified with light, uh, comes from, if you will, a kind of good God. Whereas uh, uh, material, uh, material things come from, if you will, an evil God. And so there are two dual principles, or two origins of all that is. Okay? And these two principles are eternally in strife. Now, this ideology was convenient for Augustine. It was convenient because it exonerated him of any moral culpability. It's a kind of deterministic system where everything was determined. And so if there are conflicts in him, it was explained. Okay? When I want to do the right thing, it's this good principle winning the day. If I want to do something that seems to be disordered, well, it's not me, it's this evil principle working in me. And therefore, he became, if you will, a kind of battleground on which this cosmic power play was going on. But he certainly was exonerated from any culpability. Anything he did could in some ways be attributed to an origin outside of himself. And therefore, he was himself not culpable for what he did. Uh, They were also, in general, uh, materialistic. Uh, and, and therefore uh, uh, advocating the idea of materialism. And so even when they speak of the soul, although there's some discrepancy, it seems the branch of Manichaeanism that he embraced did not understand the soul as immaterial, okay? uh, but likened to a light weight, if you will, substance, uh, as opposed to the heavy substances that are material. And you can see, in some ways, it's likened to forces, okay, a good force or evil force. And if we're able to find a contemporary of this ideology, you might think of Star Wars, okay, that there is the good force, the dark forces, and the good forces at odds in the universe, okay. But it's not that there is any God that is outside of the universe or transcendent or above and beyond material reality. Okay? And he embraces this uh, with a great fervor and remains a Manichaean f- for about 10 years. Okay? Uh, and so he takes on this determinism, he takes on this materialism uh, by way of his Manichaean uh, faith. Now, to make a long story short, I mean, there's just so much to cover here. Uh, he stays there for the most part uh, and, and makes a living for himself in Carthage teaching. Uh, he teaches... Uh, uh, poetry, he teaches rhetoric, he teaches a variety of subjects. However, and this, this sounds similar to me, uh, uh, the students don't pay up. Okay? The students you know, aren't paying their tuition. And so he's not really making much of a living. And he tries, to, his, uh, he tries to go to the capital. He goes to Rome to try to find his way there. Now, while he is in Rome, uh, he finds actually uh, uh, the same phenomena. And the students there... Uh, though they show up, the, 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 the time tuition is due, they also don't pay up. And he eventually is going to have to go on to Milan. But before he does, and this is actually right before, I, I skipped the, this one part, right before he leaves Carthage at the age of 29 to go to Rome, he actually kind of has a, a divorce, if you will, from Manichaeanism in general, at least a kind of formal separation from the religion. 
uh, he meets one of their famous bishops, a famous Manichaean bishop. And he asks uh, this bishop uh, uh, certain questions. Uh, why are these eternal principles constantly in strife? And, and the bishop was not able to answer some of his questions. He also wondered about how man is capable of certain knowledge. Uh, he was becoming something of a skeptic. And the bishop could not answer his questions. And so when he went to Rome, he embraced a tradition that was common among scholars of the time, a kind of academic skepticism, which denies man's possibility to know truth. Any kind of truth as unchanging is possible. It is something that he would deny. Okay. So he's steeped now in skepticism. He still is holding on to a kind of materialism, Okay, uh, when he finally goes to Milan in, in search of a better life here. And around the age of 30, uh, uh, some important events happen. We'll go through some of these in maybe more detail next time. But he meets uh, the patron of this church, uh, St. Ambrose, uh, who is a marvelous preacher. And, 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 and he sees in him the model of someone who is an intelligent Christian. And, and gifted and knowledgeable even about the classical world, classical literature, and yet is putting all of his knowledge in the service of the faith. And that makes an enormous impression upon him. And then a friend of his uh, performed a, a wonderful deed. He gave him the writings of some of the, of the Neoplatonic philosophers, uh, who at the time were just called Platonists. Uh, in hindsight now, we, we view them as Neoplatonists, uh, for a variety of reasons, but in any case, they were works of the Platonists. Now, these works allowed him to overcome his skepticism. They allowed him to overcome his materialism and determinism, and in so doing, uh, allowed him to see the intelligibility of the faith. Okay? And so what I would like to do now, okay, and then... okay. Uh, he was very close to conversion. However, he was missing the whole component, if you will, of his moral life. And he needed a moral conversion in order to seal the deal and become a Catholic, which he does in, in three short years after his move to Milan. And so at this very critical stage of his conversion, we find this part of text, the part of text from the Confessions. So I ask you to take that out now, and we're going to read about some of what I've just been discussing by way of the text. See if you recognize, okay, remnants of a kind of Manichaeanism and even this materialism here. All right, this expresses, okay, uh, here is part five of book seven of the Confessions, page 138, uh, it'll say at the bottom. Uh, and, and it says the following, okay, I was trying to find the origin of evil. And now this is something that's very interesting as well. Uh, he's still wrestling with the problem of evil, why evil exists. Okay? Now, with his materialism, he was incapable of coming up with a solution. And I'm going to try to show you how his embrace of Platonic thought allowed him to also not only overcome the, the era of skepticism and materialism, but also resolve the problem of evil. And so we'll here articulate the nature of the problem of evil and get an idea of how he viewed the universe before he stumbled upon the works of the Platonists. Okay. So I was trying to find the origin of evil, but I was quite blind to the evil in my own method of research. My mind's eye, in my mind's eye, I pictured the whole of creation, 
both the things that are visible, which are visible, such as the earth and sea, the air and stars, the trees and the animals which live their lives and die, and the things which we cannot see, such as the firmament of heaven above all the angels and everything in it that is spiritual. For I thought of spiritual things too as material bodies. Okay, uh, And he goes on uh, a few lines lower. I thought of this mass okay, as something huge. I could not, of course, know how big it really was, but I made it as large as need be, though finite in all directions. So here he's actually speaking about the created world. Okay? Uh, it might be huge, but finite in all directions. And I pictured you, O Lord, as encompassing this mass on all sides and penetrating it in every part, yet yourself infinite in every dimension. Okay? Now, this is kind of how he views reality okay, before his conversion. He sees reality in this kind of flat way. He sees uh, the, the world as a kind of sponge, and God as a kind of ocean, if you will, that fully permeates the sponge. Okay? Uh, there is nothing in the sponge that is not in God. And there is nothing in God that is not, though in a lesser way, in the sponge. Okay? This is how he views reality. And so you hear also in his materialism a hint of pantheism. Okay? God is in the world, and the world is in God. Okay? He, 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 this is the, 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 literally and substantially a part of God. Now, this is his vision of the world before he encounters Neoplatonic thought. And so he wonders, and this is the next paragraph, where then is evil? Okay? Uh, we see just above that God is good and utterly good, and he made everything. At least that's what the scriptures say. Then where is evil? What is its origin? If you're not going to embrace the ideas of the Manichaeans, where does it come from? Uh, how can it be that, that it simply stole into uh, uh, this world? Okay? And he goes on to speak about how, if God made the world and made it good and penetrates it in every aspect, where did evil come from? Okay? If God is in and permeates the world, God being good, the world as just being, in this sense, a smaller part of God, okay, this finite part in this infinite sea, how can it have something that God does not? Okay? That is a major problem for him. Okay? And, and, and so you see, uh, hopefully, a, a little bit of what's going on and, and the problem that's facing him. Again, a good God made the world. Uh, the world is, if you will, permeated by God, by this good God. Now, God is infinite, okay? But he's not infinite in the way we understand. He's infinite in extension, a kind of quantitative infinity. Okay? Uh, he is not above the world, if you will, but simply beyond. And there's nothing you can say about God that you couldn't say about the world except in a lesser way. Uh, in other words, it has all of what God has, it's just in a finite way. And so if that's the case... How can we say evil belongs to the world, but not to God? And so where did it come from? 
And how did it steal into the world? This is a major problem. Okay? Now, with the, the encountering the Neoplatonic thought, he's able to resolve it in, in a remarkable and profound way. But before he does that, we see in the next chapter, which kind of interrupts this narrative very, very briefly, to discuss astrology. Okay? Now, one of the other ideologies that he was attached to is the ideology of astrology. And what's fascinating here is nothing really is new under the heavens. Okay? Uh, and he was uh, really struggling with the same things that a lot of other individuals struggle with. Okay? I remember you know, myself as a high schooler, you know, growing up in the People's Republic of Boulder, Colorado. You know, and, and, I, you know, and, and I would read astrology books. You know, why would I read astrology books? Because it's deterministic. Okay? And because if I read that I'm a Scorpio, and this young lady that, you know, is, is, a, is, is a, this sign, and it says in this book that she's going to like me, then she has to like me. You know? And so you know, I, I, this, is, this is great. You know? and this is, I, just, I find this out, and she, she's, she's one. I'll show her the book. You know? I'll point at the heavens, and, and it's over. You know? Seal the deal. Okay? And he struggled with some of the same stuff. Okay, the same, the, same, the same ideology. Now, how is it that he begins to refute the ideology here, uh, uh, the ideas of astrology? Does anyone remember from having read the Confessions how it is that he confronts uh, the astrologer, astrologers? Does anyone remember? I know it might have been a while, and it's just this small part. Well, he does something very interesting. Okay? Now, astrology w- would hold that the orientation of the heavens, the, the, the celestial spheres, etc., at birth, determines what you're going to do with your life, basically. So how would you go about trying to show that this is not a true science, but a pseudoscience? Well, you might look at the example of twins. You know, think about Jacob and Esau, okay? Could they have discerned any change in the heavens between the birth of one and the birth of the next? Maybe not, and yet their fates seem to be different. Okay, I'm also a twin. This is really working out well. You know, and just like Jacob, I stole the birthright and the blessing. You know, and all he got out of it was some soup. You know, it was brilliant. You know, anyway, you know, he's actually a seminarian. He's studying to be a priest in Denver. Yeah, uh, and, and, and in any case, uh, yeah, he's, he's a decent guy. Uh, anyway, but I like talking ill of him behind his back. But that's between me and my confessor, and now all of you. Anyway, all right. Okay, now... Now, now, what happens? So he, he brings up the example of twins. He also brings about the story of a friend, his name, uh, uh, I think it's Fermius here, uh, who, who observed the births of a child born into servitude and the birth of a child of noble birth okay, that happened at exactly the same time. And, and, he, and he pointed out that if, if they're born at the same time, they should have the same fate, and yet they don't. And so it seems like, by way of these examples, that, that there's something missing about astrology. You know? Which means also, just to tell another story, fine, uh, that I got ripped off back when I was in high school. Uh, this, this nice lady who was a single mom uh, invited my, my friend and I over to do some work at her house. And uh, she needed a little wall built around her garden. And so we were like, sure, that's fine. But we, we spent a lot of time working. We thought we'd be paid something. Uh, well, what was the payment? Uh, we got our charts read. You know, she read our charts. Yeah, hey, and, you know, and, and, 
you know, at the time, I'm like, well, if it's a science, you know, a worker's worth his wages, you know, fine. Yeah, but when I discovered it's a pseudoscience, you know, I want my money, you know, anyway. But I, I just chalked it up to an act of charity. In any case, uh, he is there, you know, he's starting to overcome some of these intellectual impediments to embracing the faith. Uh, and by way of rejecting astro- astrology, he's beginning to kind of reject this determinism. Okay. But now let's take a look at how he begins to reject uh, uh, some of these uh, other uh, systems of thought. Now, on page 143, now you might not be able to follow along every moment here. Uh, this is part 7 of book 7. Uh, he overcomes his bondage of astrology, but he was still trying, this is on page 142, I'm sorry, he was still trying to discover the origin of evil, okay? and he could find no solution to the problem. Now, what was also wrong about his methodology? See this on 143, halfway down the page. For the light was within while I looked at the world without. The light was not in space, but I thought only of things that are contained in space. Now, one of the things we'll see that Neoplatonism teaches him is that ultimately, and this is a very Platonic approach to truth and not Aristotelian, but they would hold that the material world is mutable and changeable and cannot, therefore, be the origin of immutable truth. And therefore, man has to look to some, in some way within uh, and away from the world in order to discover uh, truth. Okay? And, and he also has this problem still, obviously, of conceiving everything as contained in space. Uh, we see a few lines lower. We also see that one of the major problems is his pride. Okay? And it speaks again of his pride, one of the moral problems he's continuing to struggle with. Now, briefly, because we're going to talk about the moral relationship to the intellectual life also next time, uh, I'd like you to reflect a little bit here on the relationship between uh, our moral life and our intellectual life. Now, we've stated already that you have to know uh, uh, whatever you want to love, and therefore the intellectual life, in a sense, precedes the moral life. And yet, I don't know if, if this follows from your experience as well, but also sometimes intellectual errors stem from moral errors. Okay? In other words, when I was living a life that was less than, uh, you know, kind of a life, you know, I wasn't a radical sinner in high school, but, but, but I maybe more so than I am now, and a lot of my ideology was what? To justify what I did. Now, and there's a lot of very interesting books written here, uh, tracing even certain philosophical errors. I know there's one book I read on, on, the, on Freud uh, that, that traced maybe some of his ideas to attempts to justify what he was doing or wanted to do morally. And I think I, I can certainly speak to that. And Augustine, you can see that here. Okay? He wanted to justify these dueling tendencies in himself, and therefore he accepted Manichaeanism. Okay? And so there is this complex interplay between his intellectual life and moral life, and the fact that he's still proud, the fact that he's still also tied down by the weight of his passions, uh, which are disordered in a variety of ways that we'll discuss here maybe next time, uh, his intellectual conversion is struggling. Now, what is it that allows this, that, that breaks this inertia and allows him to move quickly towards conversion? Well, you see it on 144. Uh, um, so you made use, this is God, made use of a man, part 9, 
about five lines down into the ninth part of this text. So you used, and this is page 144, part nine, okay, about five lines down, okay, uh, into part nine. So you used a man who was bloated with the most outrageous pride to procure me some of the books of the Platonists translated from Greek into Latin. Okay? Now, this event is fundamental in his ability to come to know God. Because in this, he finally is able to see the compatibility between a philosophical vision of the world and of God and the vision of God as articulated by the faith. And for the first time, he's able to see that his religion is not childish and that the best philosophers of his time uh, advocated a vision of reality that was complementary and compatible uh, with the truths that are taught by way of the faith. Okay? And this makes an enormous impression upon him. And we see on, on part, in part 10, now on page 146, that these books serve to remind me to return to my own self. And then later on, I entered, a few lines lower, and with the eye of my soul, such as it was, I saw the light that never changes, casting its rays over the same eye of my soul, over my mind. Okay? And we'll see what this new vision of reality is able to do for him. What it's able to do for him is to reorient his understanding of how God relates to the world. And, and next time, uh, I think I'll begin here uh, and give you a chance to read in detail the rest of this text. Uh, and I think that will enrich uh, our, uh, your, your comprehension of what we're going to discuss. And see how this, if you will, horizontal, flat, material conception of reality will become altered. And he'll, he's able to see that reality, that above material reality, is immaterial reality. Uh, reality that has certain perfections that cannot be said of the material world. And in, in coming to a vertical understanding of the hierarchy of being, okay, something we'll talk about by way of Neoplatonic thought, he also is able to resolve the problem of evil and discover that evil is not a substance. It's something that is said about the world and not of God, but it doesn't exist as a substance. Everything that God created is good, but by way of Neoplatonic thought, he's able to discover what evil really is. Evil is privation, or a lack. Okay? And, and how he comes to see that and comes to understand that is something uh, that we'll talk about next time. And then we'll, we'll be able to finish this text, and I'm going to give you also uh, some other talking points for his moral conversion, and we'll see how he comes to a full and authentic experience of Christianity. Now, the last thing I'll mention, just to make note of why I have rationalism up here, and this is something that's very interesting, is after his, his intellectual conversion is complete, he finally tends towards this last heir, the air of rationalism, which holds that, and you can look in Fetus et Ratio, it talks about a lot of these airs, uh, one of the encyclical letters of John Paul II. But rationalism is the air that everything that can, that everything about reality can be known by way of reason apart from faith. And the last tendency, which is ultimately also accompanied by a sin of pride, that he struggles with is this idea. 
that after having overcome all these things, encountered the depth of the philosophical school of the Platonists, that maybe Platonism is enough. But finally he sees that there's something missing there, and then he's able to overcome this last error, this rationalism that he struggled with. Now what I hope you've seen this evening, okay, is that in our time, and I hope, I hope you we're able to discuss this more next time, uh, and, and we're able to, to get into some more depth about how these problems are resolved, I think we'll be able to see that, that a lot of the same problems that he faced are problems our society faces. Okay? Uh, and this is something that, that, and so he's a contemporary of ours. He's struggling with the same stuff we're struggling with. He's trying to overcome the same errors that our world is struggling with. Like the idea that all reality is reduced to spatial and temporal dimensions. That there is nothing beyond the space-time continuum. Okay? Uh, this kind of mentality is obviously prevalent. Now, to see how he overcomes that is going to give you insight to see how we can overcome these, these you know, ideologies ourselves, and then to help other people overcome these ideologies. Because if they assent to these ideologies, then they cannot, and they're not prepared, if you will, to fully embrace Christianity. Because out of hand, they'll see the truths of, of, of Christianity as incompatible with their own ideological perspectives. And therefore, it's useful to understand good philosophy. Because good philosophy is able to show how these ideologies are deficient, and therefore open the way for the truth that even philosophy cannot show. The higher truths that are given uh, by way of faith, by way of God's revelation, and yet which are compatible with our reason. And then we can really function as full men, with our intellect, with our will, and with our reason uh, augmented and, and even uh, elevated uh, by accepting faith. Okay? And so hopefully we'll be able to see this and we'll see all of this come together the next time we meet. Okay? So thank you so much for your attention. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.